0: Um, thank you so much for your practice. And you know, there's times, of course, um, sitting in the retreat hall in person and looking out from the teacher seat into the hall and just looking at everyone—it's it's really an incredible view, and it inspires me to to, to pay attention when I'm going off. And and likewise here in this Zoom hall, I, I prefer to look at the gallery view so I can see um, a little bit a little bit over half of you. I have one of these computers that can get 49 people on the screen, and I have a pretty large uh, monitor, so you're, you're not like postage stamps. Uh, but um, it is very inspiring to see you all and your commitment to the practice. So I really want to just Thank you. The Buddha speaks about um, that the community is the whole of the holy life. And so here we are being in community together, supporting one another with practice. And so, um, yes, thank you. And we are here in the midst of a lot that's going on. As we all know, in the midst of a, a worldwide pandemic, My ninety-one-year-old mother says, "Bobby, I've never experienced anything like this in my life." And and I'd say, "You know that—that's right, mom, because um, you were born in 1929, and the last major worldwide pandemic was like 1917, 18, with the Spanish flu." Mm -hmm. And actually, my mother's grandparents—both her mother, both her grandmother and grandfather—both died in the Spanish flu. And, and so my mother's mother grew up with her grandmother. And actually, she was alive when I was born. I had a great, great grandmother still alive for about six months. But my mother never experienced a worldwide pandemic, and we certainly are. And it's getting more intense as of midnight tonight. um, Pardon me. There's going to be a lockdown in the Santa Cruz area and the California, actually the whole California just about. And it'll be like this till um, early January. And in the midst of this, there's also racial and political unrest to extraordinary degrees made much more known and vocal and visible. Climate change, there's lots that we are all holding and yet I really am so touched with you all being here, coming on this retreat. And I also know that, um, and Mary Grace uh, spoke about this earlier, that in the first day of practice, the, often the first day of practice for many of us is that our minds can be all over the place, and it takes a little bit of time to settle. And so I just want to really help normalize the, maybe with a show of hands, you don't have to do it electronically, but anybody's mind been wandering today? <laughs> yeah, I think it's pretty universal. And so this is just part of our practice and we're in training. And uh, I'm very fond of a quote from Bhante Gunaratana. He wrote a number of wonderful books, one of them very well known as Mindfulness in Plain English that is just uh, really down-to-earth and um, very well done. But he says that somewhere in this process of meditation you will come face-to-face with a sudden realization you are completely crazy and that your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Yeah. But he goes on to say, it's not a problem. It's not a problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. Perhaps it's always been this way, but you just never noticed. So I love his kind of levity here. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. So this is a training. And Both uh, Mary Grace and JD, as well as myself, have been inviting us in our attitude of how we work with the practice to infuse it with a sense of kind attention, loving awareness, holding ourselves lightly. Payment Children offers a wonderful metaphor of training a dog and a, a puppy. And, you know, when you get a puppy, often, you know, they need to learn to sit, to stay, to come and stop, so forth. And sometimes you can train it in a very harsh, in a very rigid, in a very fear-based way. And in time, the dog often learns those type of commands. But often the dog's temperament becomes somewhat skittish or neurotic or confused. And by contrast, you could train a puppy (laughs) Um, with a lot of patience, a lot of kindness, a lot of repetition, again and again, and gradually in time, that puppy will also learn these commands, though, of course, um, we have a dog that's 10 years old, and she has selective hearing with some of those commands. And you know, I kind of accept her unique ways. But training with, with a sense of patience and kindness often supports an attitude that one begins to grow with greater confidence and flexibility. And I love that. Like, and, and, and how we can bring this to our meditation practice, to practice in such a way that it helps us to grow with greater confidence and greater flexibility when things don't go our way. This is actually a wisdom quality. But is there a way that we can begin to train ourselves with this kind attention? And I know that for some of us it goes up against our conditioning. And last night was very powerful for some of us that shared about this inner conditioning, this self-critic that that doesn't stop. So I really want to just invite we begin to bring some kind attention, the attitude that, that perhaps this is a part of wise effort, the wise effort that knows when to exert when this exertion is needed and can be done in a kind way and knows when we're over-exerting and backs up a bit, mm-hmm. using our wise and kind attention with our effort. Tonight, I, today, I'd like to speak about um, what brings us to practice and inspiration. Clearly uh, what brought me to practice uh, was what is this life? It's really, to me, mysterious. They have a son who's an astrophysicist, and his uh, area of study is dark energy. And when I ask him, what is dark energy? He says, we don't know. And, of course, well, the, the, but, but what they do know about dark energy is that it's expanding the universe, and they use uh, supernovas or exploding stars. He calls them their buoys. So we're talking about big, 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 type of looking so the, the supernovas are buoys and they help show how fast the expansion of the universe is going but then i asked him also i says well i mean how can you know the i mean that it expanding into isn't there just universe after the universe he's like we don't know <laughs> so i used to have a zen teacher bishop nipo siaku and he used to have this wonderful saying i i loved him and he used to say, every day I know less and less, someday I will know nothing. And, and I kind of, you know, like when I look at it, when I'm younger, I feel like I maybe knew a lot more than I do now. But the bishop also saw something in me. And um, I'm still working with this one. And only he could say this in a way that was so loving that I wasn't insulted, though it's going to sound very insulting. But Bishop Siako used to say, Bob, you are the stupidest person I have ever met in my entire life. And I and I'd look at him and go, What do you mean? And he would say, and, and I felt that he was looking beyond the skin, the flesh, the bones, and beings. He would say, You are already fully enlightened but you don't know it. And the way that he said it, it wasn't just... I, I felt that he believed that. I'm still working with that one as a practice. He was a student of Nagarjuna, in the Majamika Karika. So This sense of awakening is already within us. But I love sometimes the image, and we speak about this in mindfulness-based stress reduction, that there's more right with you than wrong with you, and that inside us are potentialities of great freedom. And perhaps as, you know this is more, we really don't know what was in Michelangelo's head, but some say, you know, the statue of David was already in the, mar- the, the block of marble, and all he had to do was just chip, chip it away. It was already there. That's one way of, it. perhaps that's that Buddha, that knowing within us, of awakening. That beautiful quote from Carl Jung that I quoted last night about who looks outside dreams, who looks inside awakens. But I want to just, just pause and just to honor the mystery Crowfoot, uh, Blackfoot chief and elder, says, What is this life? It's like a flash of a firefly in the night. It is like the breath of a buffalo in the winter time. It is like a little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself into the sunset. These were the, supposedly the last words of Crowfoot, Blackfoot chief. It's mysterious. And Rod McLaver, he says, why do we exist? 50 trillion cells make up the human body, and each of those cells in turn consists of atoms, countless millions and billions of them, depending on the function of a specific cell. And the atoms, they consist mostly of empty space, protons and neutrons surrounded by electrons Empty space, just as the universe is mostly empty space. The human body, this entity of mostly empty space, is a space held together, space unified, even for only a little bit by a life force. And this life force needs a purpose, and perhaps we're sitting here, we thought, what is this purpose of this life? The atoms existed before the human body. They made up and they'll be here after this life is gone. And in the meantime, in the short interval, the atoms are held together by an indescribable and unknowable force. It is downright mysterious. So when I was young, I, I had you know probably very similar questions that many of us had about like what is this life? Why is the sky blue? What happens after death? I mean, so many questions. I still at night look out at the stars, and the stars look back at me, twinkling. This mystery. And early in life, I realized, and, and I know that some of you have heard the story, so I won't go into it in detail, but I, at four years old, I had a rude awakening. And the awakening was that I was going to die, and that everybody was going to die, and that it could happen at any moment. And that was the first time I actually realized about this, the truth of, of life and death. I, I I don't know where it came from. I don't know why I thought that, but I knew it unmistakably that this was not going to last. And my mother responded to me after I told her about my discovery. She said, don't worry, Bobby, it's not going to happen for a long, long time. And I could tell that she was trying to make me feel good and not to worry, but I also knew that wasn't the truth because I don't know what a long time is anyways. And and. Um, Well, we'll just think about it later. But I remember once asking my beloved meditation teacher, Vindit Sieto, on his 80th birthday, and I asked him, Sieto, how long has 80 years been to you? you? You've experienced a lot. And he looked at me and he smiled and he went like this. 80 years. 80 years. 80 years. No doubt there's been some water (laughs) that has come along its way in this journey of life but um, I'm going into my 67th year I think about my mother she's 91 she lives by herself in Boston pretty isolated I call her every day she lost her husband my father many of her friends You know, I, I, when I'm younger, I can think about I have a whole life to live. At 67, yeah, I've lived a lot of this life, and you know, maybe there's, hopefully, there's going to be more. But there's no guarantee whether it'll last even until five minutes from now. Maybe I'll be the first uh, uh, person to to die on Zoom giving a Dharma talk. Who knows? <laughs> Hope not. <laughs> but we don't know. And I think about my mother at 91, like, what's up ahead for her? She also has some dementia, so I'm, I'm not able to... Like, I'd love to ask you, like, what do you think about this vista that you're on now at 91? And what does it look like having lost so many people and friends and yet still wanting to live? And what, what gives you meaning? And what do you think about life? What do you think about death? I'd love to have that conversation with my mommy. I, I don't know if I could have that now. But at 91, well, how much more is there? I did ask my teacher, Line Sero, who I was mentioning earlier, the one that said 80 years like this. My last trip to Burma was many years ago and I had one last question for him. And I asked Sero, he had been a monk 70 years at that point. He died at the age of 98. And I asked Cheto, You've been meditating all your life. You're into, you know, what are you going to do when death comes? And um, so he sat there for a while, and, and then I saw his cheek move up and down. I lived with him for eight years, and I knew that a cheek moving up and down, I was going to get an unexpected comment. And he said to me, Bob, are you afraid to die? And I said, Sero, I I didn't ask you that question. I was asking what you're going to do when you you die. And he looked at me and shook his head, because you need to meditate more. And I said, that's right, Sero, I certainly do. So I sat there and took that in for a while, and then I mustered up the courage again to ask him again the same question. And I said, Sero, what are you going to do? And he said something incredibly wise. Oh, my gosh. He he said, if I see something, I'll be mindful of seeing. If I hear something, I'll be mindful of hearing. If I feel something, I'll be mindful of feeling. If I smell or taste something, I'll be mindful of smelling and tasting. If there's different mind states that are rising in my mind, I'll be mindful of these mind states. This is how I will die, and this is how I want you to die. That's a very beautiful teaching. I even told this once to my grandmother, who lived to 103. And she said, Bobby, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> I love that my 103-year-old grandmother thought that would be actually a good way to go, to be aware. Jane Kenyon, she writes, I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. And I ate cereal, sweet milk, and a ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birchwood in All morning I did the work that I love. And at noon I lied down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. And we ate dinner together at a, a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. And I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and I planned another day, just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. One day I know, it will be otherwise." In the last year, both my wife and I bought uh, a grave this Green Cemetery near Half Moon Bay. In fact, from time to time we go there and we'll just sit there like this is where actually be the only place, only time we'll ever have an ocean view, but we'll be about six feet under, so we won't see it. But it's powerful to go to a place like this is where my bones are gonna, my skin's gonna dissolve, my bones are gonna melt. One day I know it will be otherwise. And this was the awakening that Siddhartha Gotama experienced. Siddhartha Gotama, who later became the Buddha nearly 2,600 years ago. Siddhartha Gotama was a prince destined to become a great king. And in his 29th year of life, having lived a life of a lot of pleasure and sport and wealth and sensual fulfillment of all degrees. And there's this teaching of when he, for whatever reason, he seemed compelled to go out into the kingdom. And in the four different times he went out, where he saw for almost like the first time he woke up out of this dream world of of pleasure and sport and so forth and realizing the realities of what's known as the heavenly messages of aging, illness, and death. And perhaps he was somewhat aware of those before, but that was way in the background and in the foreground was all this peachy, rosy, nice stuff. But somehow, in these travels out into the kingdom, there's these piercings of the recognition that he encountered a person old, probably someone that looked like me almost, or a person ill, or a person who had died. And these pierced his heart, and recognizing that the path towards becoming a king was no longer in his heart, and that there was the fourth heavenly messenger that called to him, where he came across a sadhu, a wandering ascetic a holy person that was dedicating their life to understanding the meaning of life. And when Siddhartha saw this person and asked Channa, who was kind of his um, helper, assistant, his chariot driver, and Shana said, this is a person that's dedicating their life to understanding the meaning of life. And when Siddhartha heard that, there was a glimmer of hope. There's a possibility, maybe there's a way to understand this life. My senses for every one of you here—you have already met these four heavenly messengers. You may not have thought about it this context, and actually, after um, when we go into walking meditation after this talk, I'd love for you to reflect upon these messengers and how they've touched you—the messenger of aging, the messenger of illness, the messenger of death, the messenger of of. Maybe there was someone in your life or a book you read or somebody and how they lived their life or that somehow inspired you that this, maybe this more if I begin to turn inwards. Who's been your heavenly messengers that brought you to the path? I trust you've already experienced that. You may not have put it in that type of context, but I don't think you could be here unless you've been touched in this way. Otherwise, why, why come here in front of a Zoom computer for hours on end? I love the story of the Buddha, and I, I won't go into it fully, but it, but just to say shortly, it's, it's just sojourn of understanding these fragilities of a life and then beginning to turn awareness and tension towards understanding this meaning of life. And it is said that after he left the kingdom, he practiced very diligently all these different types of concentration meditations and became a master of them, so much so that other teachers would say or invite him to come and teach with me, but Siddhartha still didn't quite understand what is this life. And then he turned his attention towards, he had heard about self-mortification as a spiritual practice, the punishing of the body, and he began to do practice in this area, limiting his food intake was the one particular practice he very much deepened, until eventually limiting his food down to one grain of rice a day. And still no awakening happening, and fearing now at this point that if he lasted much longer doing this, he would certainly die. As he put his hand on his abdomen, could almost feel his tailbone. Becoming very skeletal and realizing, this is not the way for me. And then choosing to take in some food and a middle path into nourishing the body. And then coming to a tree and taking his seat underneath this tree and making a very strong determination... I'm going to stay here. I'm going to sit. And that, you know, perhaps because he'd traveled for six, seven years and been to so many different teachers, so many different teachings, and realizing as he was taking this commitment, his determination underneath this tree, that that he's seen so much, practiced so much, learned so much from different teachers, it was time to rely on his own direct experience. And it is said that as he began to practice, his mind wandered to a memory when he was a child, sitting underneath another tree on a very glorious day, just like perhaps this day was that he was sitting in now many years later. And, And memories began to just bubble forth into him of a day that he felt oneness with the world, sitting in a tree, looking out in the countryside. He was experiencing this as a boy, he was recalling filling up oneness with the world. And perhaps because his sensitivity was so heightened, he he also looked at another area of the field, and there were some farmers there and some oxen plow. And maybe again, because his sensitivity was so heightened, when he saw the plow blade digging into the earth, he almost had this sense of hearing the cries of the worms. And he was touched with such pain and the juxtaposition of this world that there can be the sense of oneness and the other sense of, I don't know, the word heartbreaking comes to me. Heartbreaking qualities of this life, that they're both there. And it's said that something about that memory Maybe it perhaps contributed towards the orientation of this meditation practice, which, as I mentioned, was oriented towards oneness and stillness, the development of tranquility, samadhi, concentration, unification, which is a very important part of meditation practice because it helps to <clears throat> pardon me, calm the mind, bring a sense of tranquility and serenity and greater degrees of absorption but there was somehow that memory of the heartbreaking quality of those worms crying in agony that something happened during his meditation practice that he was developing the concentration but then began to shift it to the changing nature of the breath beginning to penetrate this mark of impermanence. And he had never done this before, and, and actually at that time, very prevalent in the meditative traditions was the development and the goal of profound serenity and absorption. But he used that concentrated mind towards beginning to penetrate this understanding of the nature of change. And this led to profound understandings and realizations about life. The most sobering realization began with this recognition that suffering or dissatisfactoriness, that there's pain in life. And there's kind of like a sobering and humbling acknowledgement of this. And then his interest began to turn into investigating causes. What causes this? And within him, another penetrating insight, a realization, grew and developed. It was this understanding of misconception, of ignorance, of that leads to craving? And that these were. Profound causes of suffering, the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something, or to create something, to be someone. And third, the craving to feel nothing. It led to these powerful realizations and understandings. And the, seeing that perhaps, again, with these cravings for sensual delights is looking for happiness and pleasure outside of ourselves. We are sentient beings, and we do experience pleasures, but perhaps it's really beginning to penetrate that um, that these pleasures don't buy us the ultimate happiness. I remember working with a gentleman that was an engineer, and he was kind of conditioned to believe that you know if he got a good education, and got a BMW, and gets a house, and gets a boat, and whatever, all these things would bring him to happiness, and when, when I met with him, he said, I got all of these things, but I'm not happy. Who am I? What is this life? So it's perhaps it's developing a wiser relationship with our sensual delights. And, you know, I'll be the first one to admit, I love losing myself into pleasure, too. At the same time, is there a wisdom? And I love, there's a Thai forest teacher, a that speaks about one time he gave a whole Dharma talk on how much he loved his, his tea muck. And he was going on and on about his tea mug and how much he loved it. And finally, someone had the courage to say, "Um, what's this about you and the tea mug? You've been talking about craving leads to suffering. And he laughed and laughed more and said, oh, yeah, I just love my tea mug. But um, then he went on to say that I love it because I enjoy it. And it's, it's a utility and I like the look of it, but I also know it's broken. But in the meantime, I'm going to enjoy it as I have it. And so I thought that was kind of an interesting perspective. The craving to be someone, to continue on, is a a really powerful area for us to explore. Related to last night, a few of you were talking about this critic being hard on ourselves, being judgmental on ourselves. Sometimes I almost think that the craving to to be someone is rooted in an old country western song of I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. And of course the craving for sensual delight is I just can't get no satisfaction no matter how much I try. But this looking for love in all the wrong places. Like, what does it mean, this craving to be someone? But how many of us have had the experience of feeling like we're not enough? Or that we wish we could belong to this group or to that group or to be seen, to be loved? This is a great cause of suffering for a number of us, is this, this longing, looking for love outside of us, where actually it may be inside. But if we grow up in such environments that we are fed to believe that we are not enough, it becomes an actuality. So coming back to our conditioning is so important, our identity. The good news is what is learned can be unlearned if we become awake. Awake. This is the possibility within all of us. But all this conditioning feeds a sense of identity and it happens at such a time, part of the matrix of our identity is it, it happens from, from our early childhood. We develop this sense of self. It's really... I feel very blessed that in our household I'm living with a f- a almost six month old grandson, his name is Silas, and no doubt there's some conditioning that he's already developing, and of course, from the dharma point of view, there may be a lot more conditioning but but you know relatively speaking of you know a four five six month old baby you know they're pretty pure in some way, like the other day, I was holding him holding him, his feet were in my lap, and I was holding him. This ha- actually happened twice in the past 10 days, and he, and, he, and he pooped as I was holding him. And he's just looking at me, and I'm just holding him, and he's making... And, and, and it was like, like there was absolutely... It didn't even occur to him to have shame, or humiliation, or embarrassment. He was just being himself. And when he laughs, he laughs. And when he cries, he cries. When he vomits, he vomits. When he farts, he farts. When he pees and he poops. And we all came from this place. I I can almost cry because when I look at 67 years of conditioning, oh my. And of course, last night there was another person saying 81 years of conditioning. We have a lot, I I will speak only for me, a lot of conditioning I have indeed. But But we came from this place. And through our upbringing and conditioning, we get developed and we get shaped and we become who it is that we become. And if we don't see it, we just keep on becoming who we become. And everyone around us is, of course, reinforcing that. So we begin to believe it. I grew up with the cartoons. One of them was Popeye the Sailor Man. And Popeye used to say, I am what I am because that's the way I am. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. And you know, Popeye's got, you know, as long as I am what I am and that's the way I am and I'm Popeye the Sailor Man, there's there's no way to begin to look inside. On one hand, it's beautiful it's marveling on his own sovereignty as Popeye, but on the other hand, maybe some of this conditioning has blinders in it. My near six-month-old grandson has no racial, political bias whatsoever in him. Not yet. We all came from that. We didn't come in hating. We learned that. I was four years old and one day a friend of mine called me a name. I didn't even know what it meant and I I went home to tell my parents and I said that this. The kid across the street called me a kike. And then I could see the look on my parents' face of, oh my, oh. And then they had to explain to me what, what it meant. And, I, and it was like, but I can't quite understand. Like, I, I, I couldn't understand that. The gift of the Dharma is what is learned can be unlearned if we're willing to be able to bring awareness to our body, to our thoughts, to our stories, our emotions, these narratives. And, you know, it's very powerful. There's a very beautiful um, reading, a quote from the Buddha, Upon Awakening, It's sometimes referred to as the lion's roar. And supposedly, he said, through many a birth, I've wandered in samsara, Seeking but not finding the builder of the house. And sorrowful it is to be born again and again. O house builder, thou art seen. Thou shalt build no house again. All the rafters are broken. The ridge pole is shattered. My mind has attained the unconditioned. Achieved is the end of craving and ignorance. My mind has attained the unconditioned. What's very beautiful and wise and powerful about this is that if the Buddha attained the unconditioned, it's speaking about, you can only know the unconditioned through a condition. And the condition is our story, is our narrative, is our identity. Beginning to see through the conditioning, this obscuring, or with misconception the belief that I can find my happiness through outside of me through the central delights, the belief that somehow I can be okay by others telling me that I'm okay and the third one the belief that if it's, it's penetrating through this belief that if I just disappear if I just annihilate if I just not here if I'm just frozen and just that this craving to not feel anything it's beginning to see through these conditionings we can say that the heart of the Dharma is the lessening that leads to the potential greater lessening to potentially the end of greed and hatred and ignorance. And all we have to concentrate on is the lessening part. From the Buddhist psychology, the, the most deepest sources of all suffering is greed and hatred and ignorance. And it's wonderful to reflect upon the opposite of those that sometimes we we don't do so much of. But with the, the lessening of greed, what arises is the increasing of contentment. Contentment is very underrated. It's something money cannot buy. Contentment, to me, is the greatest of wealth. My teacher, Lai De had such a profound level of contentment that just being with him and listening to his breath would, would take me to the far reaches of the deep forest. The opposite of greed is contentment. The opposite of hatred is love, heart, The opposite of ignorance is seeing through the misconceptions, the stories, the narratives, the understanding of suffering, its causes, and the path to its lessening. So here we are, these conditions that are coming up for us as we sit, these stories of my own deficiency. And maybe it's not so pleasant to become aware of that, but actually... It's good news because it's showing us the places where we actually can bring attention to and to begin to investigate and begin to perhaps understand that this is not all of me. This is part of my conditioning that led me to feel that I'm so-and-so of a person. That we are more. So maybe we'll just pause here for a moment with that and just to sit for a few moments, breathing in and breathing out. And what would it be like with these breaths in and breaths out? Uh, perhaps one breath at a time to just experience for a few breaths. The a, a lessening of greed and inviting in a sense of contentment and ease within our being. It's the skin, the connective tissue, the muscle, the bone organs are being just just breathing in and breathing out experiencing a sense of contentment we don't need anything don't need to push anything away or get anything just as we are all oh, the stories can begin to just fade Breathing in and breathing out, the lessening of hatred, aversion, not wanting, and the heart's becoming open, friendly, kind, compassionate. And breathing in and breathing out, developing greater clarity, dispelling the ignorance and misconception of things, this understanding of the places where we get caught, seeing through the conditioning, experiencing greater freedom, clarity, understanding, wisdom. So I'll just end with uh, some words from Tsongkhapa. He says, The human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. Cherish your body. It is yours for this one time only. The human form is one with difficulty and it is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief like lightning in the sky. This life, you must know, is like a tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. The human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. You for your attention and yeah, this will be a time for a half hour, I believe, of uh, walking practice and check um, yeah and um, yeah, I would love to invite you if it feel inclined. This invitation of these messengers that have brought you onto the path. Illness, aging, death, and perhaps there's a person, a book, a figure in history, someone you heard of, or something that just inspired you, that, yeah, I could begin to look inside. So this inspiration brings us to the path. Thank you so much. See you in 30 minutes.